recording okay oh and also if there's anything that you don't want to say or anything like that just you've said it and you're like oh i don't want that to be in the podcast no. just say it straight away or let me know you, like you know after. me well enough to know that <laughs> I, I say too much anyway so it's highly unlikely kia ora koutou and welcome to revolving door syndrome i'm dr nina su your friendly neighborhood pediatric and emergency doctor my day job is helping sick kids get better but lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. So this episode, we've got Rob Campbell, one of our most recent chairs of the Tefatu Order, as well as Dave Latelli, who will be joining us later on. So both of you guys are obviously very big on your about brown yeah, butter bean motivation, which I can I, see. I've the, got the, the jacket, jacket and I'd be amazed if Dave doesn't. So, <laughs> so, what, um, the bad thing is he's got the new jacket, I've got the old You've got the old jacket, okay. So I want to start this off by talking about how we ended up here right now with you on my couch on my podcast. <laughs> Bring it back to, what is it, November well, last year? Well, I think there's year. all sorts of people that when Nina calls them and says, do something, they do it. <laughs> I'm just another one. Back in November, I remember I was probably quite like peak, I would, I'd say peak burnout. And I was in the middle of studying for my written exam for paediatrics, which yes, doctors, after we finish medical school training and university, we still have more exams and it's ridiculous. Anyway, and I remember I'd been following you on LinkedIn for a few months being like, okay, what is happening with Tefatu Order? Because me as an employee of Tefatu Order and many of my employees, we were like, what is Tefatu Order? Where are we going? We don't really know. What is it going to look like? Is it going to be any better? And, you know, what changes are going to happen? Nobody, like, really knew. And I was following your story for quite some time and seeing all the things that you were saying on LinkedIn. And I was like, yeah, this guy's saying the stuff that I agree with. And then, you know, the changeover from Tefatu Order in July, I was like, where are the changes? What is going on? And then I remember you'd posted this thing about Doctors Live Matter and how we need to look after doctors. And I just thought, oh, just getting so angry because I was like, oh, I'm so burned out. And this person, he's the chair of Tefatu Order and he's saying all this stuff. We're not getting any changes. In fact, the hospital owes me thousands of dollars worth of like money and this, this, this. And we're all exhausted or the nurses are quitting or the doctors are quitting. Like, where are the changes? And that's how I got angry on LinkedIn. <laughs> and, and then we had a meeting. We did. And you're still a bit angry. <laughs> oh, just angry or is it passionate? <laughs> Yeah, actually, I wouldn't have. You you yeah. use the word angry. <laughs> Passionate's important. I think it's important that those of us who care about the public health system don't get too angry. There's all sorts of reasons to get angry, but angry is negative and we won't rebuild a system from negative emotions. So I do prefer the term positive. Positive, yeah, yeah. And passionate, passionate. Yeah. I just believe what I believe. <laughs> And we had a lot of interesting conversations between us and one of my other colleagues as well around that time. And we also invited you along to our emergency department to see what yeah. it was like. What were your thoughts? It's one thing to, to know things on paper or from what you hear. 
it's another to see them in action and going behind the scenes at that ED department in Tamaki Makara was helpful, I think, that it was so late at night because things had actually quietened down a little bit that night. I know they don't always. But you experience the pressures, you experience the tiredness, you experience the commitment in different ways if you actually go there and listen to the people who are doing the work. So how did I feel it was? I was impressed by the dedication of the staff, but I knew I would be. I was a bit despondent about the working conditions, but I guess I knew I would be. I was really quite inspired, though, more than I thought I would be, by how positive people were about that, not about the system or about the reforms or anything like that, but just about the job they were doing, who they were, who their patients were and what they were doing about it. That's inspiring to me to see people that committed to anything and in the health system that's day by day what happens, isn't it? And what was it about the working conditions that you saw that night? So it was drab, it was cramped. The whole place was just tired and that's, I think, a bit depressing for the people that work there but also for the people who were coming to get the health service they needed. And when did you step into the role of chair of Te Order? So we had a big run-in of, I don't know, six or nine months as an interim committee who were basically learning some of the ropes and seeing what the the unit that had been developing the reforms was doing. So we didn't have any control or influence at that point. We had a kind of a, an internship period. But the actual role as chair of Te Whātua had only begun on the 1st of July last year. Before all of this, what kind of work were you doing before you came into that role? So before that, I was a, basically a wandering minstrel around boardrooms of New Zealand. I was in a whole range of corporate boardrooms over decades. That had been my working life for, for quite a long time. Earlier periods, I'd been a trade union official and before that an academic for a brief period. But most of my relevant working life was in corporate boardrooms. Do you think that that was one of the the barriers to making change is understanding the clinical stuff? Because I think for me, before we'd met, I was thinking, who is this other guy who's high up in management, no clinical experience or health management experience? That's probably not something directed at you, but more just who are these people who are like running this show? (laughs) I don't think it was a barrier. So on a board, without getting too much into the detail of it, With governance, you're looking at principles and approaches to things and ways of doing things and giving guidance about those. I'd be much more concerned in health about the quality of health management. We inherited the entire health management really from the old DHBs and in my view, the quality of health management is low compared to what I was used to in private sector businesses. So I'd be much more concerned about the people that did have experience than the people who didn't have experience, (laughs) because I think the people who didn't have experience could actually see with more clarity what the issues were and were also more used to responding to experts. If you go to my experience, say, in Somerset retirement villages, I knew I didn't understand how to run a retirement village. I knew I didn't know how to run an aged care centre, so I had to listen to those people about it and then make the the high-level business decisions. Similarly, in tourism holdings or in precinct properties, I didn't know anything about building a building, 
but I was able to listen to the architects and the construction experts who knew you were used to doing that. One of the funny things that I've found in the health system is that health management doesn't want to listen very often you know, to what the experts are saying. Yeah, and, and not even just experts, just the people who are doing the job. Yeah, absolutely. So by experts, everyone's an expert in the job they're doing, yeah, basically. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether that's a cleaner or a surgeon. You should still be listening to them about how that job works. And one of the problems with the public health system, I have no doubt in my mind at all, is that the senior health management doesn't listen enough to the people that are doing the work. How do you think it ended up in this situation? I'm not an historian, but organisations that, if an organisation is subject to competition and knows it's subject to competition, it often will respond more quickly. It's one of the good things about private enterprise, and there are some good things about it. It has to respond to competition, so they look around a lot more. One of the problems, I think, with the public health system is that it thinks it is not subject to competition. It's wrong. It is subject to competition the whole time from private providers, from the alternatives that are available for people, but they don't perceive themselves to be. They perceive themselves to be some kind of a monopoly and control of the health system. I think a big bit of the problem is the Ministry of Health, which in my view is too powerful and too uh, stuck in its ways. The public health system is leaking furiously. When you say that, everyone says, of course it is, but it doesn't behave as if it is. I think there are a lot of healthcare workers that come into a public health system, doctors, nurses, whatever, who have really good intentions and want to work really hard, want to do it for the people, because that's why we do the six-year degree or whatever, to do this work, however many years of training to finish. And then you get people who finish training who want to work in the public system who can't because there aren't jobs, and then there are people who also like have so fed up with working in the public health system that they're actually like, oh, maybe I can actually do better, like, better mahi, um, get, it, get it to the people by working mm. in the private system because they can get more autonomy over how they want to do things because it's just so rigid and things just change so slowly that we can't make the difference that we want to make. I mean, that is one of the problems for Te Whātawara, that it, was, it had to take over all of the management and administrative staff of the previous DHBs and a chunk out of the Ministry of Health and a large number of those people not really capable of doing the job of change, but many didn't even really want to change. And that's still a problem. The kind of person that I am is that I go around pointing at all the things, but this is wrong, I want to change this and this, but there's no one I can go to make those changes and nobody who's like actively asking me or other of my junior doctor mm. colleagues, how, what can we do to like make your job more efficient, make it better. And I feel like the things that I say are things that people have been saying for like decades, just <laughs> centralization of patient notes, electronification of patient notes, that that would make our lives so much easier. Yeah, look, <laughs> there are processes underway, but the, one of the issues is that in that respect is that there are far too many of them. So if you have 100 initiatives, probably none of them will get done. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that the system finds it really hard to do is to define what a manageable set of objectives is that are genuine priorities. If you look at Te Paitata, you can read Te Paitata and not many people will find things to disagree with in it. Is it the, it's the new the, health? the health plan, sorry. Yeah. But there's so many objectives. You could read it and think, okay, what do we do tomorrow? And have no idea at all about what you do tomorrow. 
and that bedevils the health system. You may recall the one of the many working groups that was done or task forces was on planned care and it came out with a hundred and something recommendations. One of our board members actually referred to it as the 101 Dalmatians report. <laughs> it was always, if you, he talked about the Dalmatians report, you knew what he was talking about because there's something with a hundred odd recommendations is rubbish. That's no help to anybody to decide what it is you're actually going to do. It's just another list. You said before that you felt like the Ministry of Health has too much power. So if who do you think that power should go to if it's not the Ministry of Health? Or where should we decant that power to? Yeah, I did say the Ministry of Health was too powerful. I think if it were better at what it does, it could be. <laughs> you would like its power to to last, but I think it is still too influential. It calls itself the steward of the system, but it's demonstrably no good at doing that. How did they, for example, for years and years, give workforce advice to ministers about what they should be doing about training and workforce recruitment and migration and all of those things? And we now find that actually the basic data is not there. Yeah, I they, saw that article they, and I was like, oh, they have no idea they, they have how no many idea. trainees they've right. got. They don't know the data. So how they are. How did they ever think that they were giving any kind of sensible advice? We now find out that the data, what they don't have, they don't know. I'm like, it should be easy, right? So, for example, I was saying before, the <laughs> like hospital owes me, again, they owe me so much money, like $5,000 with the training experience. Join the club, they owe me some too. <laughs> <laughs> I have to pay for my training college fees, my exam fees, et cetera, et cetera. Like every year I have to pay for this and I have to show them that, that I'm doing this, right? And they have to see like the evidence that I'm part of the college. They should be able to see, oh, we're paying for this many people to be in college training as a basic trainee and this many people as advanced trainee. You should be able to capture that just by looking at like how yeah. much money they're spending on this kind of stuff. But they don't. But it's right through the system. And these people were the steward of the system supposed to be looking after it. So that one of the things that came up in the process of being on the board was we've got to prioritise some of these digitalisation programmes. We can't do them all. We're going to have to prioritise them. So, OK, have a look at payroll. Can that last? Can we just use what we're using now? Oh, no, about eight of them are running out of support. Uh, oh, yeah, like the, the expiring. Yeah, like the, so the we actually have expiring. to do those ones. So how, do, how does a responsible ministry allow that to develop, allow a situation to develop where they were in charge, they were giving the directions, and to allow that to be imminent. But that is rife through the whole system. And those are all gross failures by the ministry because the ministry was the key to making these decisions about where money should be allocated, was supposed to be giving the advice to government on all of these things. And everywhere you look, it is abjectly ill-prepared. But how intertwined is Ministry of Health in Wellington versus Te Whatu Order for the rest of the country? It's, the, if you like, the first obstacle because you won't get the appropriation out of government for whatever it is you're spending on. That's all quite tightly defined while by the time the money comes out of central government. The ministry really is the gatekeeper to that because they're the ones advising ministers on what the decision should be like. Then many of the specific decisions require ministerial input like building decisions, capital expenditure decisions. And where do they get the advice on that? From the ministry. So the ministry, again, is first gatekeeper and often the last gatekeeper on these key decisions. So they're much more present than people think they are and then 
I think they should be. I mean, Te Whatawara has some elements of centralisation in it, but the aim of the centralisation is simply to get systems working. It's now going to take much longer than we thought because they're so bad. I think that will happen. But then there has to be a mechanism for decentralising the use of those systems. It's one thing to have a central system, but that does not mean you should control it centrally. You should then use that to decentralise so that the, the... the doctors and nurses and other workers on the shop floor can be making real decisions with real material, real facts. Do you think there was enough like preparation leading up to July of 2022 for the change driver? Well, there was enough spent and, <laughs> and there was enough time. How much was enough spent? Too much. <laughs> I don't even know the number. Certainly Many millions. Tens, tens of millions were spent on these reforms. And I think they missed a lot of a lot of very critical things. The reforms never defined what the actual ongoing role of primary health organisations was going to be. So the PHOs are there from a previous structure. They're working away well or badly. You can all have different views about that, about different ones. So they have their view about how they are going to allocate the money out to general practice, for example, and how all that would work. Alongside of that, Tafatawara is instructed to develop these networks and regional structures. Localities. Localities, exactly. Same time, Darkafaiora is instructed and is trying to develop the Iwi Māori Partnership Boards and the PHOs are still exactly where they were. What is the role of the PHOs? The PHOs can't tell you. Te Whatawara can't tell you. Te Whatawara can't tell you. The ministry certainly can't well, tell you. Well, I feel you. like, you know... So why didn't you... Th- those things had to be thought out first. I certainly feel like primary care has been left out of this conversation of what is Te Whatawara going to look like. And the other thing I want to talk about, actually, is Te Whatawara, as you brought it up. So how are you finding the... Tiakafai order, or how did you find the way that Tiakafai order and Tefatu order were working together? I had a sense that there was some tension between them, and I felt like you know, they were slightly had different goals, I guess, for Tiakafai order and Tefatu order. Do you feel like they're working well together? I think the boards worked well together. There was probably, frankly, absent some political reticence about equity and Tateriti issues. We would have worked more closely together than we were. So the concerns were about how closely we worked together rather than were we working closely enough. To- the concerns were that you're working too close together. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly, yeah. So there's some reticence about that. The other issue for Takafaiora was it was starting from absolutely nothing. I saw some criticism the other day of them using too many consultants. Now, I'd give them a pass on that, and I'm about as anti-consultant as anyone in the universe, but they had no one else. They didn't have any staff. So when they were starting up, they needed to recruit staff, but they needed to bring in all new systems, et cetera. And so they were given a, a huge task, and it will take them some time to build up. People underestimate, for example, how much effort they had to put into developing Iwi Māori partnership boards. Now, those will, I think, be influential in due course, but they are yet another Pākehā imposition on Māoridom. They are not Māori organisations. Yeah, because Te Ora, it's a world first, basically. This whole nationwide level organisation that's a partnership with Te Whatu Ora. We don't have that in Australia or Canada or the UK. Yeah, but you it's know, a very, like- honestly, it's a very colonial partnership. They have very limited power. They have very limited money. They were started from scratch with a a composition that was decided by the Crown, Mm. not by Māori. 
So while it looks good on paper, it's a hell of a struggle for Takafaiora to really develop into something which is strong. And the best hope, really, in terms of an Indigenous contribution to the health of this country is the work that was already going on amongst Kaupapa Māori providers all over the country, and Takafara will support and nurture and develop those, but it's way short of the money it needs, and it needs also to have a whole lot more influence over what Tafatawara does. I know the National Party and the ACT Party say it's got vetoes and things it doesn't have. It needs more power, not less. So what powers will they have or do they have? Well, well they have some money to allocate to Kaupapa Māori health providers. I actually forget the number, but it's trivial in the total context of things and it needs to be much more. The organiser and the conduit for the influence of iwi Māori partnership boards on the implementation of the health plan and they monitor the performance of Te Whatawara and the ministry in terms of the equity objectives of the Paora legislation. It certainly is not, for example, anything like a separate or Indigenous health service, which actually is probably what it should be, in my opinion. <laughs> These things were not well considered in the development of the legislation. Yes, I think a lot of healthcare workers would agree that lots of things might not have been well <laughs> But can I say this before you bring in my comrade here? I've been warned by people I really respect that it's great that I continue to speak out about health issues and to criticise things that are wrong. But we also have to be careful that does not contribute to overall negativity about the health system. We need a strong public health system in this country. We do, we do. We need to build that. We need to build confidence and positivity around it. I'm very critical of the leadership that I think is not doing that job, but we've really got to be careful in everything that we say that we also have positive views about what could be done. Some of these things just do take time, and I don't want to be one who's contributing towards negativity about the whole system. Fair, fair. I guess from my point of view, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty burned out. My colleagues are all pretty burned out. <laughs> we don't have anyone who's looking after the human resources. And I'm like, it's more and more clear post-pandemic that actually it is the human resources that we have in our system that are of the highest value. So many amazing doctors, nurses are burning out. How I saw healthcare four years ago is so different mm. from how I see healthcare now. You know, a lot of amazing doctors are not on the same level that they were before. They're not as positive and bubbly as they once were. And that's not their fault or anything like that. It's the pandemic, but it is also the way the system is structured and the attitudes at the senior executive and ministry official level. You've got this highly skilled, highly motivated workforce that is now completely out of trust in the system. But Tafatawara has ended up being a representative of the government to the people that work in the health sector. And it's exactly the opposite of what it should be. It should be the key representative for the people that are working in the health sector to the government. It's no wonder people are cynical about it. Tafatawara's got to change that around. And the people who lead Tafatawara have got to be clearly, explicitly, and loudly on the side of the people that work in the sector or it simply won't succeed. Absolutely. We're a pleasure to have you guys back with us. Um, so, <laughs> welcome to Dave Latelli. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> 
we're going to go back to what we were saying before about Tefaju Order with Rob. What was going on around the time where I guess you were, I don't know, ousted from your role as chair or asked to resign? I don't know what you want to call it. No, they didn't ask me to resign. They, they offered me the chance to resign or be sacked explicitly. That was the choice I had. So I thought, well, might as well be sacked. <laughs> If you go, you're going anyway. Um, so I was sacked. So what was going on was that over a period of time, I was becoming more outspoken about the things I thought were wrong with more the health system. More passionate, more angry. Yeah. No, we forgot. We're off angry now. We're on, we're on passionate. Um, so there were a series of incidents. One where I said publicly I thought we should be supporting Chloe Swarbrick's bill on alcohol sales from a public health point of view. That was our senior public health officials advice and it was eminently sensible. So you weren't uh, allowed to support Bill that was about reducing alcohol harm? No, that's right. It's a bit bizarre, isn't it? I struggle a bit with it too. Because, because Dave, you're very obviously very big in your community in South Auckland. I think one of the things that I noticed in my medical training doing these like community visits to whatever NGOs down in South Auckland. And I just remember me relatively grew up working class, but then middle class by the time I was in high school and did a lot of my medical training in Auckland. So lived in centrally and that whole culture, the coffee culture of central Auckland. And I remember as a group, we'd gone down to South Auckland and I was like, oh, should we go get like a coffee? Should we go to like a cafe? And then we were like, oh, I can't find just like a nice little cafe because it's full of KFC, mm. McDonald's, like mm. alcohol shops and things like that. And it's just crazy because it's what, like a half hour drive away. And then the environment is mm. so different from the environment just here in central Auckland. Yeah, 100%. Like Rob talks about it where he said to me, why are all these people jumping off this burning building? Why is everyone jumping off the building? But no one's looking at why is the fucking building on fire? <laughs> You know, true. you know what I mean? <laughs> and they're looking at setting up these obesity clinics and let's give them Optifast and give them these new pills to get them to get their bariatric surgery. But no one's but no one's looking at why are we just surrounded by every single bad choice that's available to man? Why is it all at arm's length to us? Why is everything bad for us there? Totally. You know, if you want something healthy, you've got to travel or you've got to pay a lot of money for it. Yeah, you yeah. just look at the like supermarket density of like central Auckland versus south Auckland, it's completely different. And even if you have a supermarket, like what they have on offer, the specials that you have at the ends of the aisles, you get different stuff oh, here in Royal Oak versus it's, south it's, Auckland. It's one of the reasons I love this guy is he makes me cry quite often. <laughs> and he did today. Tell Nina that story about the 15-year-old boy and his family and how that family lives just quickly. Yeah, because so, a lot of people listening to this just won't understand what yeah, how you reality. get to be like this. It's the know? reality of it. I got a, I got a. Funny enough, I got a referred, connected to a family through Fatuora, through Middlemore, and I thought, geez, why don't you refer him to your new brand new obesity unit? Anyway, I said, of course I'll meet. And it's a 220 kilo 15 year old. I met with the mum. I text the mum to Nancy and she texts back at 1am in the morning saying, I've just finished work. Yes, I'd love to meet you. So I met them this morning and she's so busy working to just survive, just to put food on the table, just to keep a roof over their kid's head. that They don't have the luxury of choice and food prep and shopping and being able to cook these nice healthy meals for their kids. She's at work all the time so that the kids are cooking. And when I said to her, I said, I understand. I understand it's not your fault because you're just trying to survive and your kids, you're trying to just keep a roof over their heads and food in their stomachs and they're the ones cooking. 
they're not the kid doesn't eat breakfast doesn't eat breakfast gets to school has the the free lunch that they give goes home has noodles or takeaways or whatever it is and then they have dinner and the old thing where people talk to me about choice dave it's their fault lazy brown people it's their choice fat brown people it's their choice their fault choice implies equal starting points and choice and that it's not equal for them there's no equity there they're just so busy trying to survive it the last thing they're trying to that they can think of is cooking a healthy meal for their kids as soon as i said to her and i took the blame off her she she just broke down and started crying i said i get it but now it's about how do we break this cycle so your grandkids aren't in his position it's about education you don't have time to teach your kids you don't have time to teach your kids what you learned you just come from work she broke down. I said, look, let's help. We, we start on Monday, but I want you to go home, write down every single thing you eat. I don't want to judge you, but it's so I can tweak it. Because it's not about putting you on chicken and broccoli. It's about tweaking what you're already doing and just making it a little bit healthier bit by bit. So we're going to take the so time. It's all to about the, sh- the achievable things that are small changes that are long term. And Tafarawura, Middlemore, was so little use to this family, it is not able to address any of those issues, so it refers them to someone who's not paid. <laughs> yeah, so we'll train, so we'll take them under our wing and for free, we do it because we care, our wise, our people. But then I just think, okay, geez, I'm going to get a kid that to come back who we helped in the exact same position. They were in emergency housing, this whole family. You know, he's lost like 80 kilos now, but they're in emergency housing. He was going to school out west and he got taken to emergency housing out south. They just totally displaced his family. Absolutely. You know, and we helped him. He lost like 80 kilos, done exactly the same thing, got invited the whole family to start training with us. And then I'm going to get him to come back, help this kid with us, and then we'll turn it into a whole new class, after school class for kids just like him. And how do you guys like fund it? Is the Ministry of Health funding? Is there any sort of funding from Te Whatu Order? Uh, so after eight long years from all the hustle, a lady called Carmela, really amazed, she's no longer with Te Whatu Order. She came out, she visited us. And she goes, this is amazing. This is the answer. I said, well, I have been telling you fucking guys for eight years. And it's taken that long to get here. But she was amazing. And she, and, but even her, when she said we had, she had resistance coming here. So I was telling people that we were coming to visit you. And they said, oh, be careful. Be careful, be careful. of what? He doesn't, what he teaches doesn't align with us. And I said, what? what? <laughs> not to drink fizzy drinks. Does that not align with Tifatu Water or Ministry Health? And because uh, it was before Tifatu Water. And so we got this little pilot program, two-year pilot program, started in COVID. So it was quite hard at the start. We got 250,000 for, for two years, so 500 grand. 100 grand of that goes to the researchers and also the PHO, which is fine. And so we got 200 grand a year for two years. It ends in September. Amazing results. The evaluation that's come back from Massey, not just for weight loss, because everyone looks at the weight loss and they think, wow, before and after, that's, that's the wow. But what this research has found, said, the mental health benefits. They said, if we didn't do this evaluation ourselves, we would think this is fake. And that's how good it is. We had an impact lab report showing that for every $1 invest is a $13 return. Wow, wait, that's crazy. You know, and that's right, because I saw that there was that public health study, yeah. I think is the- So you know what they got? 1.4 million. 1.4 million for the first year, this, this obesity clinic at Middlemore. Really? And that part of that was to set up this new clinic, this new base. I said, we have something here in Manuko already going. That's why I was so frustrated with it. 1.4 million. Then they got a another, their second year funding's 2.9. 2.9 million. But who's making the money? Pharma, these big pharmacy companies, OptiFast, and the surgeons getting paid big money to do these operations. The aim of that is to put people on a sudden 
restricted diet using Optifast to get them to the weight at which they can do bariatric surgery as compared to what should be done quite, and every, it's not possible to disagree with it. Yeah, I don't want to comment on things like... Well, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not I don't disagree with bariatric surgery. Yeah. It's an option yeah. and it's a valid option for some people. Yeah. But it's for me, it's, it's like not the a last resort, for everyone. right? Yeah. And it does not fix habits. It does not fix your mindset and does not fix who you're hanging around with. Yeah. You've got to fix all these things. Holistic approach is what we do. I said to them, why don't you send people to us? We'll help them to lose the weight but to get the operation. But at the same time, we're surrounding them with people on the same journey. We're teaching them healthy habits, how to cook healthy in a budget, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, because I, I saw that there was like that big study, the qualitative study that was done on the brown butter bean motivation. I was at Auckland. And I think one of the main things... We'll bring it up. It's good you're reading it because I haven't read it. <laughs> The main thing that I found was, you know, really interesting was, I guess, the whole kopapa Māori part of brown butter bean. And you don't have to be Māori to be part of this movement, mm. right? And one of the big parts was the te whare tapafa model of Māori health and wellbeing. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of Mātauranga Māori or about te ao Māori is like the way that it looks at people in a holistic view, isn't it? Because you can't just do things like give people optifast and expect them to lose weight because there's so much with the whole increased weight thing, isn't it? Because there's that whole mental health thing of some people turn to food because of mental health. Some people have mental health issues because of their size or how mm. society sees them and everything like that. But it's really interesting that you guys incorporate all the other stuff as well. So well, the social these, part, yeah. the mental health support mm. the spirituality mm. of just being with other people on this journey with you 100 percent, and not those models to fight a type and pacifica we didn't even know we were doing them exactly it's just something we do naturally mm. and it's again it's for everyone poverty depression obesity suicide all those things don't know color they affect all of us but that's the model we use the for the research it's funny with research i hated research people would come to me and say what are you the first one that came to me, they were, we want to research the benefits of exercise for elderly people. I said, why don't, you, why don't you research that there's not a benefit? I said, that's ridiculous. Of course there's a benefit. Why are you wasting money on this? So anyway, that person left. But now I understand the importance of research and data. Because when I started and I go to different funding people, people would say to me, oh, where's your evidence? Where's your data? So do not follow me on Facebook. <laughs> I said, no, Dave, that's not good enough. You need data. So it's amazing that we have uh, this collaboration with Auckland Uni and also Massey University to back up. Because I always say what we do works. We say it. What we do works. But now we say what we do works and here's the fucking research to prove it. You understand? You know what I mean? Like, it's like what other excuse can you give us that you're not going to support us? Here's the great irony that the overwhelming funding for what Dave and the team are doing comes from rich white people. Mm. We've got a public health system. We've got money being directed all over the place to try and deal with these issues. And here's a service, and there are others around the country, which is talking about this one, doing similar kind of things. Nothing as good as this, in my opinion, but the funding all comes from rich white people. Yeah, it is it is crazy when you think about it. It's, that's the hustle. That's where our funding comes from. It's the hustle of it, the grind. They see the work and they want to give back. But it is very frustrating to, to think that we don't get the support that we should be from the Fatu Order. You won't believe how much in the earlier days the the hustle that, that went on. At one stage, Dave, we were taking money from Sky City, yeah. <laughs> gambling money, and from the guy across the road with the dodgy pokey parlour. Yeah. But so you've got to take money. The thing is you've got to take money where you can get yeah. it. I remember sitting at a, a mongrel mob talking to a president. We were talking about leadership. 
I was just talking about even if you're a leader of the mob, you can still lead your people down a positive path. Absolutely. Uh, you've got a great opportunity actually to do so. And then he gave me an envelope because here's some koha. Uh, and it was a large envelope. I said, thank you very much, brother. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> well, I, think, yeah, I think it's like a really good point. Like one of the episodes, one of my like favourite episodes of this podcast I've done so far was actually I interviewed this lady, Cherie Kurarangi, who's from the East Coast, Napier area. And uh, she's a strong member of Wahine Toa, I think her woman's only chapter mm. of Mungra Mob down that way. And uh, it was really interesting to hear her story, very harrowing to hear her experiences and the experiences of the people when her community and all that and I think it is important that we engage with people like that because she's such a she was such a strong person in that community and the bridging both worlds because mm. I can see so many people in that world just not able to engage with mainstream services like she was telling a story about how hard it was to get someone who'd been sexually assaulted to get them the help that they needed in the mainstream mm. hospital because mm. you need to do that to gather the mm. evidence Mm, yeah, that's my background. That's where I come from. My father was the pres of the mob. So that's, I think the good thing about our, our, about BBM is that we can we appeal to everyone. We work for everyone. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I want to just hear a little bit more about your background, Dave. How did you end up doing this? How did I end up getting into this? I got into it really organically. No, nothing was planned. Like I, BBM, I just spoke to a group at the gym today. And I said, you know, our kids are so afraid to try because they're so scared to fail. But BBM was born out of failure. That's what happened. I moved back here 2014. I'd lost my businesses in Australia. I'd lost my family. And I had no money. I was staying at my sister's house. I had not one cent in my pocket. And I was about 210 kilos staying on my niece's bed, couldn't fit on. And I was staring at the roof thinking, man, how did I stuff my life up so badly? How did I get here? And how old were you at that time? I was maybe 34. And I just, uh, Mike King talks a lot about having this inner critic, that, that, that overactive inner critic. And that was me. My head was this voice inside my head telling me, you should just end it. You know, you're useless, you've lost everything, you've got no money, you don't have your family, you should just kill yourself. And it was nonstop, you never know over. And when I was 21, I, I actually did put a knife into my chest, you know, and that voice again, it was deafening, but I didn't listen. I got up and I got off the bed and I borrowed my sister's car, borrowed petrol money, which was humiliating. And I drove to One Tree Hill and I went for a walk around One Tree Hill. While I was walking, I wasn't thinking about how crap life was. Just, I gave my brain a chance to rest. I felt good, the natural endorphins afterwards were running through my body. And so I just would I train to forget about how shit things were. And I got into boxing and through boxing, I, I played like this character. The only reason I got into boxing was I was, I was my one of my best friends called David Higgins. He started Duco events. He was Joseph Parker's manager, he started the NRL nines. Richard Branson, he brought, he's a big time event guy. And he said, look, we'll throw you in the ring to give you a chance to, some motivation to lose some weight and to get your life back, something to focus on. So that's what happened. And But I had to play a character, the, the brown butterbean. And that brown butterbean character was was born in Germany. What does brown butterbean mean? Well, so 
I was in Germany, David Higgins, he was so worried about me that I'd do something to myself so he would never leave me alone. And he said to me, you want to come to Germany to watch Joe Parker fight? I said, yeah, of course I do. And so he always said, well, you better train hard because you're not coming in business class. Because <laughs> when he brought me back from Australia, he had to pay for me business class. I couldn't fit in economy. He brought me back here. So he said, oh, you better train hard. So I started walking twice a day. <laughs> And I got on the plane. It was a very long trip for the person sitting next to me. And over in Germany, the head of German boxing was so fascinated by me. They'd never seen such a large tattooed Samoan Māori before with shaved head looking so angry. And they wanted to see what I weighed. And I did too, because every time I jump on the scale back home, it always says error. So you know, <laughs> they threw me on a stage, threw me on a scale, and I weighed 178 kilos. And while everyone was so shocked at how fat I, I was just so happy because for the first time in my journey, I understood how much weight I'd lost, you know, and I was, I was overjoyed. I was so happy. And I was like, yes, I'm the man. I'll take on anyone. I'm the toughest man in the world. Come at me. And stuff on like movies. And, that's, I was, and I was saying it to the people in the room and everyone was laughing at me. And that's when Dave Higgins had the idea of we're going to, this is what you're going to do. We're going to roll you out before Joe's next fight and you're going to be the next circus act for Duco. But you have to be this character called the Brown Butterbean. And that was named after, there's a famous American boxer, a white guy called Butterbean. Quite a large white guy. I was a large brown guy, so they called me the Brown Butterbean. And that's, I hated it. I said, oh, I want to change the name after a few fights. But they said, oh, you can't. It's got brand equity now. So... <laughs> But who would ever thought? Who would ever thought it would end up where we are now, helping thousands of people? And because I was fighting on TV before Joe fought, I was losing weight. So my weight loss journey was being played out before Joe Parker fights. Every time I'm on, they wouldn't see me on anything until the next fight. I'd be a little bit smaller, I've lost weight, and that's when people were asking, "Man, what's the secret?" So amongst all the hate mail, because I got a lot of hate mail through boxing, this guy calling out whatever area Joe fought in, saying he's the toughest man in the world. So I started getting death threats. Pacifica and Māori people would say, you're a disgrace to all your people. I'm going to send you some rope to hang your family with. My um, goodness. Yeah, so it was got really bad. And that, when I was getting all this, I was now living in a community home in Clendon on a mattress on the floor, living with a rapist and a robber just out of prison. That's where I was. But I just used it as fuel. But after the first few fights, people would see I was losing weight, so they asked me what the secret was. And that's how I started BBM, or Butterbean Motivation. It started as a Facebook group with just me in it. And then I could send people there because everywhere else I had to be this arrogant, egotistical boxer. This, this dickhead, that's the character I played. But in this group, I could be myself. And I would share, like, this is what I'm up to, this is what I'm eating. You know, it was like a blog, and people would, the group would grow. It's like 16,000 members now. It's still private. And then we started our first boot camp with helping my father-in-law's mate at Trust Stadium, just one person. And I thought, we should see who else wants to come from our group, put in the group, oh, if anyone wants us to come, this is where I'm going to be next time, come along. And it, that's how it started with one person helping her in her driveway in Papatoy. And I said to her, oh, we should see who else wants to come. From that was born what we're doing now. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. We now have three gyms, a community kitchen, a food bank, and a, a social supermarket. And, and, we're, and we're about to open Hamilton and all with very little government funding. The amount of amazing mahi you're able to do, like you know, it's much more than just a gym. It's the nutrition, it's the access to just the basic needs. Yeah, one of the most common things that was said to me, that's the common excuses to me is, oh, Dave is expensive to eat healthy. And it can be, but it's hard to use that excuse for me because I had no money, but I was educated. 
And that's the difference. So I understood that you've got to educate people so that they understand. So that's why we, the, all the class we do, it's not really just exercise, it's everything. Health is having access to good food, having access to housing, you know, having even just being able to give your kids clothes and uniforms. And so that's where we started morphing into the social side of it because health is far more than just running boot camps. Absolutely. I was having a look at the stuff that you were doing with Brown Butterbean Motivation. And I was like, this is very similar to ideas that I had when I was like in medical school. Yeah. I was like, wouldn't it be great if you had this one-stop shop where you mm. had healthcare, physio, mental health stuff, a gym and a healthy supermarket yeah. that's like affordable mm. on site. If we could just have that, wouldn't it be great? And then nobody else really agreed with me. And I'm like, but, <laughs> but why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's the model, and that's how we got the bit of funding we got from Tefatu Auto was Ministry Health at the time. Uh, it was just before they formed. But I met with a PHO and who was friends and had seen me speak at a function for County's Medical DHB in Wellington, which was the biggest waste of my time ever. But I met her, Kate, from Total Healthcare, and we didn't, took a while to link up again. But she came and visited us at the gym. And she said, how can we help? I said, all of you guys, the healthcare should be wrapped around us, the community. We're here. People feel safe that they'll access it. So let's catch them earlier rather than waiting for them to turn up to the hospital when it's almost too late. Absolutely. And they said, that's a great idea. And I said, I'm meeting uh, Ministry Health tomorrow. Let's pitch it. And I pitched it and Kamala loved it. I showed her the impact lab report. And then connected her to Kate, and that's how it happened. But that is the model where it's everything the social services, health services, all are wrapped around the community. A prime example is the when we were working with the floods and the evacuation centre in Mangare, where you had it was run by the community, and without the community, it would not have run. But you had all of the social services, Kainga Order, MSD, all these other organisations that they were there so that they were people would come in and they could access it. You know, it was all a, a one stop shop, just like you said. You know, that's the dream for me is to have all these things that we do at different spots in Auckland, to have it all under one roof, the village, the BBM village, where everything's there. Lawyers, free lawyers, free healthcare, counsellors, exercise, food bank, kitchen, supermarket. So we run employment programs, youth programs, and, you know, we're open to anyone. It's always welcome. Have you guys been working alongside the local gang members as well with your program? We're open to anyone. Yeah. And how how have they been finding it? Look, we don't ask them if they're gang members. You know? yeah, yeah. Everyone has the same vibe. It's BBM is a gang. Yeah. It's just a positive one. Religion, churches, the Lions Club, the Rotary Club, they're all run like gangs. It's all the same thing. You have a president. It's just have, a group. It's you just have a, a secretary. Club. <laughs> you, know, you have the same thing, but it's whether it's positive or not. So we provide something positive for people to belong to. And, and that's what BBM is. That's what people, we all have an innate sense in us. We want to belong to something. We want to belong, and that's what we provide, something positive for people to belong to. I remember one day when Rob was early with us and we were training at Mangare Mountain, at Mangare Bridge there, and it was BBN's one of the only places where you'll have a chairman and then you'll have all of these patched, full-face tattoos, gangsters there training together, but we're all there for the for one reason, is just trying to get out. Because how did you guys even end up best buds? I was speaking at a Sky City event. It was a fundraiser for these people that were, what was the name of the app again? My River. Yeah, My River. Uh, great people. And I went along and Rob was talking to Kevin Mialamo. I didn't know who Kev was. So I didn't know who Rob was, but I wanted a selfie with Kev. And so I got my selfie uh, and then Rob talked to me about his being worried about his health. And I said, well, How long should... ago was this? Oh, how long? 
five or six years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, long time ago. <laughs> you should put down that wine and the sausage roll and we'll start tomorrow. <laughs> and I didn't think he'd turn up. And we, what was it, six, seven in the morning? It was early at Sky City Grand. We met. Uh, I was driving this, no way he's turning up. I was going to have some breakfast. And he probably didn't think I was going to turn up. And we did. And we went upstairs to the Grand Gym. And I said, what are we training? <laughs> We're not training here. So we went to we went for a big walk at Liverpool Street, which is the steepest street in Auckland. That's how we started. Yeah, got yeah. up there once. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was quite an occasion. The next time I actually worked out with Dave, apart from what he and I did together, but the first group session I went to was actually in Papatoi at the hall there. And Dave put me in a group with some older guys. And it was only after we had started working out for about a quarter of an hour, I realised everyone else had an ankle bracelet on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was the odd man out. <laughs> How did you feel being the minority? <laughs> yeah, it's quite, it's, 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 and yeah, it just grew out of there. It's really like my main advisor and mentor now. One of the only people I probably listen to sometimes. sometimes <laughs> and it suits you. Yeah. I want to bring it back a little bit because I know we've got limited time with you, Rob. Bring it back to what we were talking about before about the sacking at the time. So, yeah, how, what was going on at that time? Yeah, so I had that issue with the having the wrong attitude towards alcohol for, That's a, right, for yeah. a health person. Then I got interviewed by Heather Duplessis-Allen and she kept saying, why did the minister say there wasn't a crisis and did I agree? And I thought I was trying to be loyal to the minister at the time, and I said, well, that's the minister's view, but in my view, there's a whole lot of crises, not just one crisis, so maybe that's what he means, which I thought was quite amusing, but the politicians didn't. So I got a bit of a reprimand about that. And then when Minister Verrill took over at the first meeting I had with her, she outlined what she thought her priorities were, and one of the things she thought we should do was to start downplaying the equity side of the argument for Tafata were in favour of the efficiency arguments and clearly I didn't agree with that. I think it's nonsense. I think they're intertwined personally but it was all part of this thing about backing off treaty issues and again I simply ignored that and went on talking about the things I'd always been talking about. So there was just a series of things where I was regarded as being too outspoken. The issue they that sort of finally got me sacked was that I wrote a comment in LinkedIn about the National Party and their Three Waters policy. And I said in it that Christopher Luxon had rescued his party from stupidity over climate change, which was in relation to him shutting up Maureen Pugh, who had said something stupid about it. And that, but he nevertheless would have a bigger problem with the dog whistling he was doing over Maori involvement in Three Waters which incidentally is a phrase which Christopher Hipkins has since used quite often talking about it. But anyway, at the time, that week, it was regarded as a bad thing to say. So they rang me and said, look, you can't say this about the leader of the opposition and still be a public servant. And I said, but isn't that government policy that they're wrong about three waters? And they're like, that's not the point. He can't criticise the opposition in that way, you can't call him stupid. And I tried to point out that I hadn't called him stupid, even though I did think he was stupid, but I hadn't said that. And so they said, you either resign or or we'll sack you. Interestingly, a number of people now have said it was good that you stood up and were brave. And actually, I wasn't. I was chicken shit. I actually did apologise. I said, look, I'm really sorry. I apologise if I've stepped out of line here. Why don't we talk about how we can manage this going forward? Because I thought... 
I had the responsibility to keep working on the health issues, but they weren't interested in that. So the point was they wanted to get rid of me anyway. I was well aware. I'd been told in December of last year that there was a body of thought on the Cabinet and in the Ministry of Health that they should change me. So I knew it was coming one way or another. You had a bit too much trouble, were you? (laughs) They've got a view about how they want public servants to be, but I never really saw myself as a public servant in anything other than a very technical sense. The whole thing about setting up a Crown entity is that it does have some independence. And I think when you've got a body like Tafatawara, my genuine responsibility was to the health system and to the people working within the health system and speaking up for them rather than just representing whatever government policy was going around at the time. I mean, anyone could do that. You could get a chair of Tafatawara and write a pretty simple algorithm that just said, I agree with the minister, couldn't you? So I think people should be speaking out, and not just me on health, but I think it's the same in the environmental world and the climate change world. There's public servants. They are scared to speak out because if they speak out, they will lose their jobs and we'll lose the planet while they're not speaking out. It's the same with the health system. A day wouldn't go by that I don't get a message on this from someone in the health system telling me I would love to be able to speak out like you did, but I can't or I will lose my job. Absolutely. And you'll have a meeting. You have a meeting about like, "Mm, I don't know if you should have said that because of the organisation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Social change, and we need social change on these things, is about activism. We need activists. So where to next then now that you're, are you currently employed or still... (laughs) I've got a few little gigs. I've got things I'm doing in the health sector. I'm pretty busy most days at the moment talking to various organisations and individuals in the health sector about how they can best advance the genuine interests of the health service. None of those amount to a job. We'll see going forward. You eventually run out of currency as the ex-chair of Tafatawara. That'll get a bit boring as a headline soon. I want to ask you guys a question, so for both of you guys. So I think with the sacking of you, Rob, <laughs> and with Te Order being quite new and Te Akafai Order being quite new and all that, I think 2023, I don't know if it's just because me and my age, things are becoming, politics is becoming more important to me, but I just feel that this year, this general election is going to be very important. It's our first essentially post-pandemic general election. What do you guys think about this year? Well, we've got one politician who's sitting next to me. <laughs> yeah, I think, look, they're all pretty much the same, these political parties. You've got National Labour, they're pretty purple. You put them together. The one thing is they all promise, promise, and we've been promised so much from Labour in these last two elections. And people were, t- when we get in, don't worry, we are going to look after you. And it just never happened. I'm thinking about getting into into politics in the Māori Party. And the reason I've chosen the Māori Party is because I'm friends with JT, but also they will be the only party that will let me be me because I'm not conforming and I'm not changing for anyone. I am who I am and I speak for the people and that's all I'm there for. Um, so that's why I chose them. And I, I agree with Rob, you read their policies. Rob's my proofreader. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at reading. That's why he said... Who needs ChatGPT? Yeah. you got Rob Campbell. <laughs> and he said, Dave, I think we agree with all of this. And it's good enough for me, Rob. <laughs> but, but I want to be... I believe that you can be an activist and I will never call myself... If I get in, I'll never call myself a politician because I'm not. Because it's, it's an interesting role, isn't it? Because, like you say, a politician is not necessarily like an activist and you're very much an activist. You believe what you believe and you say what you say and you mean what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, and I just advocate. 
You've got to advocate yeah. for people down at the bottom that no one listens to. I'll never, if I happen to get in, I'll never go, I'll never call myself a politician and I'll still remain the same. I'll still be in the community. I'll still be on the ground. I'll still be at BBM and speaking to the people and then relaying these messages to, to the powers that be. I just think it would amplify because I'll actually be there. People always say it's good to be at the table. I don't want to just be at the table and they give us crumbs. That's why not. Let's build a new table, hey Rob. Let's yeah. build a new table. And invite who we want. Yeah, man. You it's know? a bit of a it's a bit of a New Zealand thing. This about how tight we want to keep our politicians in the in the party system. If you look at someone like Bernie Sanders in the United States, he's an independent. He stands as the senator for Vermont as an independent. The Democrats don't get in his way, but he doesn't hesitate to give the Democrats some pretty decent hits on the way. He ended up being the Democrat nominee for president and got tens and tens of millions of votes in the process of running in the the primary stuff. So he got a lot of support and that's regarded as okay there. If you and there are not many things I like about American politics, but people with independent points of view can get into positions of influence and leadership there. So you can combine social activism with politics. So I think that we'll find in New Zealand, as we realise the depth of the social and environmental crises that we have, that we'll probably get some more and more of that, that people won't necessarily just vote for blanket political party, whether they call people whips or what do the Greens call them, musterers. I think we will get more independent thought and action in those ways, and it'll be a good thing. Do you guys get any money from Auckland Council? No, we get nothing. What do you think about proposed budget for Auckland City? He's talking about cutting back on all these community groups. But why would you do that when it was without the community? There would be no flood response. It's always the community groups that are doing these things, that are reacting and servicing the needs. It's just, it's he's just so out of, he's he's an idiot. (laughs) The whole council, they're powerless. Very frustrating, but so... It doesn't surprise me with what he's trying to do with cutting cutting with the budget. I know that BBM did a lot of work down in the East Coast as well, so it's not just an Auckland thing. Yeah, we help where, where we can. We help you know, when, when they got hit. I knew that the attention would shift from Auckland. I just didn't think it was going to be a cyclone. So we were setting up, getting massive warehouse, the store stuff, capitalise. This is before yeah, the storm before. hit. So during the floods, I knew that... People are going to forget about us. We have to take advantage of all this wanting. People wanted to give furniture and give stuff. So let's. We needed to get a big warehouse so we could. We couldn't give it out, and no one could. No one else could really take it because they didn't have the space. So I thought ahead. I said, like, "Okay, we need to get all this stuff," and we did. And then the cyclone happened. All these areas that got hit so bad. So that's. So people have now forgot about Auckland, and the, the Hawke's Bay was the biggest thing, and rightfully. And all I didn't go down there because you couldn't, but I just found out who are the people there doing the work. You know, the community groups. The community. I, yeah. just, I, just, I actually just put a post out, I think. Tell me who's doing the work down there. Who are the groups doing the work? Just connect me to them. I made a phone call to a friend that used to be a councillor there. He saw the light and is no longer a councillor. But <laughs> he uh, he told me some groups. And then we saw, it was a couple of Marae and a community group that was called Polyactive that was helping RSC workers. And then I connected with a lady, uh, actually a business in Gisborne. And I connected to her through a pilot from Air New Zealand who told me that they can send freight there for free. 
And it wasn't free for long once I started because <laughs> I was sending <laughs> as much I took as much as I could, pallets and pallets daily. And it was just connecting to business networks through through foodstuffs. I rang up foodstuffs, Willa, who's our contact there, and Chris Quinn, amazing people. I just asked, can you please connect me to the supermarket owners in those towns affected? And then I'll deal with it from there. They connected me to them and I said, I'm gonna start sending people to you, but I just need you to order the stock. Uh, and some pit groups couldn't take stock. So I said, I'll send them vouchers. I'll just buy tens of thousands of dollars worth of vouchers and these groups can come pick it up so they can just go shopping for families. And that's what we did there. And it's, our work still continues. We're at the moment getting containers ready of furniture, fridges, beds, couches, everything a house needs for families when they move back into their homes in, in Hawke's Bay, which is where we're, what we're already doing in Auckland. In Auckland, in March alone, we fully furnished 50 homes. Wow. Fully furnished, like everything. Because people are going back to home, especially Kainga Order residents are going back into their homes. They don't have nothing. Parents are breaking down when their kids, when they're told their house is ready, so they're getting out of the emergency or the temporary housing they're in, and their kids are asking, where are we sleeping tomorrow? They don't have no beds. These are basics. There's so many people falling through the cracks. And so that's what we're that's what we're doing here. So we've pivoted again, and we're now a furniture uh, removal and delivery company. <laughs> it sounds like BBM is turning into a bit of a department store. <laughs> yeah, it's our storage areas. It's a lot of stuff there. I've had to put cameras and alarms because there's a lot of stuff. It comes in, it goes out, but we're also storing stuff, getting ready for Hawks Bay. Man, it's all of that happened what like January, February, right? And then I feel like now it's April. And it's not really there in the news media anymore. Mm. But you know, as far as what's happening on the ground and in the East Coast, all those community groups. Oh, it's, it's still the same. That's why I get so frustrated when I hear these politicians talking about we're going to invest more in the relief fund. And So when's the actual re- relief work going to start? These families still now, I got a videos uh, a couple of days ago from, a, from my people on the ground showing me Esk Valley. And it's a mess. People are forgetting about it, but there's families down there that are, have lost everything. They have no support. They don't know where to go to because you've got to understand how to navigate the system. And so many people just don't. Speaking to families that were given $300, they lost their house. They have to move out. They're given $300 for bedding and $300 for food. They've just lost absolutely everything. And that's what they got. But if you know how to, the questions to ask and how to navigate the system, you can get, I think it's six grand or whatever it is. They got $600. You know, so it's just, yeah. There's lots of gaps in the system. And what about the whānau here in, in Auckland? It's mainly the people that don't have any furniture moving back into their homes. And of course, it's all the food supports. We have a great relationship with foodstuffs. They've done a lot, uh, a lot through this and even before. So they've been supporting us really since COVID. So the first supporter of our food bank was Chris Quinn from Foodstuffs. I looked online and this, how we started our food share was I got asked by a social worker in West Auckland if I can help a family, a mother of four, with no food and no money the day before the first ever lockdown. Can you imagine as a parent how that must have felt? The day before the first ever lockdown when no one knew, the uncertainty, the fear, and then not having food. And the funding that they had couldn't cover a South Auckland family. So they asked me, because it's a friend of mine, the social worker, so of course I'll help. I helped her. When we are taking the shopping out, she's crying. The kid's running out. Mom, 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 we've got food. We got food now and it broke my heart because I understood that mum will be one of thousands. And so that day I jumped on LinkedIn. I started searching who's the boss of all these food companies, found Chris Quinn. I saw we had a mutual connection, a guy called Boris Sokratov, the Bulgarian Māori. <laughs> yeah, so oh, we're all linked on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> so I rang up Boris. I said, I've lost Chris's number. Can you please send it to me? <laughs> 
And he goes, but he gave me the number and I got, I rang Chris and he helped me because he could, you know, that's the thing. If you can help, you should. And he helped me because he could. Then from that, we got relationships straight away from foodstuffs. And then from that, different supermarket owners jumped on board straight away. Pack and save Monaco, massive supporters still to this day. New World Southmore, massive supporters still to this day. And there's a whole host of others through the lockdowns that were supporting us. So I want to bring it back to the brown butter bean motivation. So what is it about the program that you guys have that works? Well, it's run by the community. It's run by people that have lived with lived experience. You're not going to listen to anyone that hasn't been through it. You have to have walked in people's shoes where you understand the pain they are going through. You get it. You know, you understand what it's like to not have money. When we run youth courses with BBM, we know what it's like to, I'm telling kids don't sell drugs. I know don't sell drugs because I've sold drugs. <laughs> like it's, you know it. I come from that background. It's the lived experience of people. They believe it. When I tell a kid it's possible, when I tell people that we're helping with weight loss, it's possible. You can achieve what we have. It's possible. And this is how you do it. And so it's just the buy-in that people have because we've got that lived experience and it's community led. It's the environment. It's not the exercise, it's the culture we have where people feel safe, they don't feel judged. They turn up and walk through those doors and they're ready to fight for their lives. Just give them the tools and educate them how to do it. It's run like a village or a marae or like society used to be where it's saying, well, oh, it takes a village to raise a baby. That's gone now because everyone's so busy trying to survive. But what we're doing is bringing that back where we are a community, we are a village or a marae where we are truly in it all together. And we don't just help you to exercise, we help you with every facet of health and your life, you know? Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit more about your background in the past? You talked about dealing drugs and your dad used to be quite a high up leader in the Mongrel Mob as well. Is that right? Yeah, he was the president of the Auckland chapter of the Mongrel Mob. He was a bank robber and, um, and drug grower. So that was the life that a lot of people now are born into. That's why I go back to the choice thing because it's not, I didn't have a choice. I was born into that life where I just thought all these things were normal. You know, first memory of the police was them raiding my house and stealing all my Christmas presents. You know, that How was old f- were you? Oh, maybe three or four. My goodness. It was my first ever memory of the police. From that day on, I hated the police. And so when I talked to Andrew Costa, I said to him, how Is can we- the police yeah, commissioner? Yeah. So how can we re- reduce the harm of when you do these things to the kids? Because it's not our fault, you know, and otherwise our first introduction to the system is something so traumatic that we hate it from that day on. And I hated the police for a very long time. It's really only out of COVID that I started liking the police, where I understood now the police are another community group. We started working alongside them to help feed families that they were seeing, but it took a long time. And I passed that trauma on to my kids. I still now have to check myself passing the police. I say, fucking pigs, because I hate them. I hated them for so many years. I have to check myself. I can't pass that trauma on to my kids because they haven't experienced that. That's me passing my trauma on to them. Yeah, it's the choice thing that gets me, So you know. Um, talking there was a person that I met at the BP in Papakura just on my way to Rotorua I was parked up there and I was so stressed and I got a guy knocks on my window he's begging for money I get out and I'm going to help him um, he said him his wife and his newborn baby are sleeping in the van over there went over checked the van sure enough she's there got the blanket pulled up over her head she's so embarrassed that her husband's there begging for money pulls the blanket down and maybe one month old baby and here's the thing about choices those parents have made bad choices to get to where they are but that baby what choices she have you know, nothing. 
So how can we help that girl Absolutely. to break that cycle and to be something? Because I, I find it really hard and really frustrating when people say parents just make, need to make better choices. Parents need to make mm. better choices. They're the ones who chose to have that baby, yeah, and it's yeah, but it's the like, baby didn't yeah. choose to be born so, there in that situation. And we have to do everything we can mm. to give the parents the skills and resources 100%. to look after that baby. If we think <laughs> things are bad now, imagine the kids of these kids. Exactly. We've got to we've got to get in there, and it's really is community and business and government working together long term, not just this government or the next all governments long term. Because this is a generation thing. That's how long you've got to you've got to be willing to go in there and work for that amount of time. Be willing to take some hits because you can't throw money at this and think it's going to change. You've got to be there long term to change things for those kids and their grandkids. Absolutely. Maybe that's why we're so successful. You know, but yeah, like you said, that's why the, all this evaluation and being published, you know how crazy it is being published in health journals when I'm in a restaurant and a student's there saying, oh, are you part of that brown butterbean movement? I said, yeah. That's, you are I, the brown butterbean movement. I am part of it. And she goes, oh, we just, I'm from Auckland Uni. We just did our assignment on you for public health. <laughs> how crazy is that? You know? Famous. Yeah. No, it's not. It's like something that started in a park is now being studied at university. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and then being evaluated by two different universities. Sometimes I've had to step in with these two universities arguing over who owns the data. (laughs) So they're not getting along and I had to sit on this meeting and I said, listen guys, if the mongrel mob and black power can get along, surely two universities can. (laughs) (laughs) Don't bother me with this rubbish again. (laughs) And that, so they, they went, you're right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. have have you guys been engaging with leaders within gangs and stuff to try and get them in the movement or oh, look you know, this doesn't work like that you know we do our thing they do theirs we're always here yeah we have a my sister started my late sister vicky she started a charity called grace foundation they're now one of the biggest one of the they are the biggest bail house in the country and they provide community housing People just out of prison, they have women's refuges where you can with your children for women coming out of prison and they run rehab programs. So we partner with them and that's where the, all that work gets done. What we got to understand is prison is not rehab. No, it is you know? not. So, Absolutely. So you need these rehab programs that work being taught by people who have lived that life so that the people believe it, that it is possible and that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. I was seeing that somewhere in some prisons in New Zealand because they're so woefully understaffed that inmates are just kept in their rooms like 23 hours of the mm. day, mm. which I think is ins- it's just inhumane. You can't expect somebody who people did a crime or whatever and now they're doing the time is what it is. I'm not arguing that, but it's just how can you expect someone on the other side to be a better person if you don't give them the chance? Yeah, yeah. And I went and I spoke at prison in a Woody Men's prison last year and I hate prisons from the years of going there and I hate corrections and I still do hate corrections. I'll never like them. You know, that when my sister went to prison, my sister Vicky and in prison she got sick and they didn't take her to the doctor so I think it was like 12 weeks by the time she got to Middlemore Hospital she had to have her stomach taken out and was given she had stomach cancer and given six months to live imagine if they just checked 12 weeks prior and then so that's where that stems from I fought and I got her released and I hate prisons and I hate corrections, but I love my people. So I went in there and spoke and the people, one of the leaders in there said, where do we go? We're safe in here. We like it in here. We're looked after. We get our food. We got shelter. But where do we go and who do we turn to when we get out? 
That's the question. And, and all I could say to him was, well, turn to us. Turn to BBM, turn to Grace Foundation. We can help you get through it. But, you, you know, there's hard decisions that need to be made here. Yeah, absolutely. So some of these people have been gone for 10 years. You know, the world is different from 10 years ago. Yeah, and you've got to, there's these people that we help now that if we didn't help them, if you've got hungry children, you'd do anything. If you think that you've got no other options and you've got your kids are looking at you like and they're fucking starving and you don't think you don't have any family, you don't have any friends that can help and you think that the only option is to go and steal or to go and rob or to go and sell drugs, what are you going to do? Of course you're going to go do that. So the help that we give with our food share for me is it's a way of stopping that. Yeah, because you know? it's quite cheap to give people food <laughs> because yeah. if they have to go and source well, like, food through other means, it's, like, it's uh, a lot more expensive. It's like 100, I think, what, 150 grand or something a year to keep a person in jail. You yeah. know, imagine if that same level of funding was put into rehab programs or put into prevention programs. Because the kids yeah. of the people who are in prison, they're yeah. like, I don't know, somewhere between four and nine times as likely to get into prison at mm. one t- one point in their life compared to kids who don't have a parent who's been in prison. So I'm just like, we know the kids are at higher risk. Let's just mm. divert the resources over there. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, a lot of what they do doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Common sense is the least sense used oh, yeah. down in Wellington, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> so that brings me to back to what we talked about a bit before about these possible moves into politics. Tell me a little bit more. When are we going to hear more? Oh, not for a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just not, I'm not 100% sure. I definitely am seriously thinking about it because, but especially on LinkedIn, the feedback, I didn't realise how many people actually cared what I did and on my decision. So many, it was unbelievable response and people calling me. I think you've got a me. very good public, what's the word, like public image. I think there are a lot of people from very many different like mm. political spectrums who are like, this guy, he's doing some good mahi there. Yeah. It was, and people, the most thing is people, oh, Dave, you'll just be bound by red tape and that it'll change you. And I just know me, I'm just different. Uh, people said that they thought this was impossible. Lots of people would laugh at me when we started Butterbean Motivation, say the name of our group, and they'd laugh, they'd scoff at me. And I'd say to people, well, one day we're going to have all these gyms and we're going to be employing our people and providing pathways of employment for our members. And people say, yeah, whatever. And look at us now. Yeah, you know? I wanted to reach out to you to come on my podcast a while ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the early days of my podcast and look how far my podcast yep. has gone. And uh, it took a little while for us to get here. And I just thought, oh, through through December and then January and February and March, and I was like, oh no, am I going to get this guy? Because <laughs> Dave is very busy. He's got a lot of things going on. And here we are. So I'm very glad yeah. that you well, it was Rob. It. it was Rob actually that said yeah. that. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know how Rob said, no, you should, um, you should do this. Good. So thank Rob. <laughs> very much. I'm very excited to hear what comes up in the near future for yeah, you. Yeah, it's going to be good. The politics thing, like I truly believe you can still be an activist and you can still be an advocate in politics. I think you can. Uh, you know, I think and it's I, possible. People are just trying to pigeonhole politicians and I just think that you don't have to. I think you can still be yourself. I think it's because there's not enough people like you within politics yeah. that we think that way. Yeah, someone else said something to me and it, that's what really stuck with me. said, like, all the stuff you're getting being told, all this advice, this is why good people don't get into politics. Exactly. And we need more good people in politics. I believe so. You know, we don't need these career politicians who haven't lived, who don't know what it's like to struggle, don't know what it's like for the normal everyday person. We don't need more. We need less of them. 
and we need more people who actually have lived, who are passionate and who actually want to create change and that's why they're there. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry for the (laughs) swear words. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. We've already got the explicit label on the thing. Uh, So thank you for coming. And also thank you, Rob, who had to leave us early. But thank you so much for coming. (laughs) It's good because we caught up with Rob, had a little bit of a a meeting outside before he left. So (laughs) it's funny. That's how if I ever just one day, imagine if I became prime minister uh, and then you think, geez, that cabinet will be the fittest cabinet out. Because when me and Rob have our meetings, we meet at One Tree Hill or we meet at the gym. That's how you have meetings. You train and you meet and you talk about things while you're training. That's how life should be. You live healthy. and It should be part of the lifestyle. None of us work 40, 50 hours a week just so you can afford to go to the gym and then eat the food and go to the supermarket, which I find very difficult. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. You know, that's it's got to lead by example. Yeah. And that's living, like being out there and having your meetings while you're walking around. Absolutely. You know, doing some exercise, feeling good about life. Yeah. We just have, you know, time for one last question from you guys. I want to ask both of you, what is your biggest guilty pleasure? <laughs> is that the look of someone who's got too many or not enough? <laughs> what's, what's the demographic of who this podcast goes out to? <laughs> um, everyone. Uh, the funny one, the sort of amusing one I would say is I really watch a lot of trash TV, for example. Food. I got addicted to Married at First Sight. <gasps> which, which season? Which country? This most recent one in Australia. <laughs> in fact, so much so that when I watch things on Netflix, I keep saying, we watched one last night. There was a guy that looked so like Harrison. I ended up not liking this guy and he's in a completely different, he's a different person in a different country on a different thing. And I didn't like him because I thought he was like Harrison from Married at First Sight. So there you go. That's yeah, about, I do, I do it's about as shallow as you can get. I, I do enjoy Married at First Sight. I remember last year I had a knee injury. So I was at home with my parents for a while and they're like, oh, do you want to watch Married at First Sight with us? And I said, no. And then I couldn't do anything because I had an injury. So I was like, I guess I'll watch it. And then I got hooked and then I got my partner hooked. And then I got my friend hooked. I was like, this is great. This drama is great. Keep watching. <laughs> and what about you, Dave? Oh, I don't know. That's probably eating peanut slabs. Mm. I love them. It's probably my guilty pleasure is my, how much I love peanut slabs. Yeah. And he's not talking about a peanut slab either. Yeah, yeah. They're always on special two for. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy that's. I really enjoy chocolate, especially peanut slabs. Oh yeah, yeah. I wish I wasn't so lactose intolerant. It is what it is. <laughs> it only hits me five hours later, so <laughs> it's what it is. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.